this morning's sermon, which is entitled Mothers in the Bible, not all the mothers in the Bible, but some of them. I want to begin by reading an illustration, and this illustration comes from, oh, one of the many books I have on illustrations. They're difficult to find, and I have these books. But I, have, I was curious today to see uh, how old this book was because the, the pages are, are turning a bit yellow. And uh, I look back and the original printing was 1947. So that is uh, virtually uh, some 75 years ago. And what I do like about these illustrations from these older uh, illustration books is you, you get the climate of the times. And I have one on motherhood. And you just wouldn't hear this kind of thing anymore. It says, The heaven that lies about us in our infancy is motherhood. And no matter how exalted or how depraved we may become, we are always attended by the grace of a mother's love. Nor does that vision splendid ever fade into the light of common day. Every great man has glorified a great mother. It was so good to read that. That was a breath of fresh air. Because as you know, recently, due to a leaked wink-wink document from the Supreme Court regarding the decision on Roe versus Wade, it has caused a geostorm of reactions. And it's even produced an organized protest called the Mother's Day protest. How revealing is that? Well, my job is not to be political. My job is to preach the word and that I will do. But as part of my illustrations, there's a couple of things I want to read. A couple of other quotes contemporary quotes that caught my attention. One believer wrote, to protest on a day set aside to celebrate the beauty of motherhood reveals the utter brokenness and irony of pro-abortion activism. By the way, he goes on to say, they can only have their voices heard Because their mothers didn't abort them. Now, when Franklin Graham, when he heard about these protests on the churches, in a very Franklin Graham kind of way, he said, Bring it on! I hope Christians will pack the churches this Mother's Day and invite any peaceful protesters to stay and hear the message. That brings us back to where we really are and where we really ought to be in regard to how do we handle these things. And again, yes, there are things that we can do and should do in some way be involved. But remember, the bottom line is changed hearts only happen through the change of believing in Christ as Savior. I have a few more quotes. Uh, again, I, I, you know, the reaction is doesn't surprise us, but the reaction still is sometimes more than we really expected. I'm not going to read any names, but 
we did hear one response. The justices' report, uh, reported votes to overturn Roe versus Wade would go down as an abomination. One of the worst and most damaging decisions in modern history. In other words, if they overturn Roe versus Wade now, it will be an abomination. It will be the most damaging decision. Well, the word abomination, if they would have done some checking, comes from the Bible. And abomination is for those most horrific sins. And the Bible uses the word abomination for the killing of innocent children. Another quote, this decision about overturning Roe versus Wade is a direct assault on the dignity, rights, and lives of women, not to mention decades of settled law. It will kill and subjugate women, even as a vast majority of Americans think abortion should be legal. What an utter disgrace. No, that comment was an utter disgrace. Roe versus Wade will not kill anyone, but rather it will save lives. That is not a disgrace. That is the grace of God. Another writes, an extremist Supreme Court is poised to overturn Roe versus Wade and impose its far-right, unpopular views on the entire country. It's time for millions who support the Constitution and abortion rights to stand up and make their voices heard. We're not going back, not ever. And I guess the smile on my face is because abortion is not constitutional. There was never anything in the Constitution about that. And worse, it has never been biblical, this whole idea. And then finally, this last one I want to read. It's so telling and it's so ironic that no comment is needed. A journalist writes, I'm in Mississippi outside the Jackson Woman's Health Organization, the abortion clinic at the center of the SCOTUS case. While conservatives are celebrating the possible end of Roe versus Wade, some women here tell me they feel gutted. Devastated, like someone has died. Wow, have we not come into a society that has turned away from God and calls what is wrong, calls it right. Well, I want to now turn my attention to the Bible, and I want to talk about four mothers the first mother I want to talk about is Eve. She is the first mother. Could also be entitled the mother of the living. And I will make a number of comments about pro-life from the Bible, from her example. We have Mary, the mother of Jesus. She was the trusting mother. We have Eunice, that was Timothy's mother. She's the evangelistic mother. And we have Hannah who could also be the praying mother, but I have her down as the dedicating mother. With that, let's go to the Lord in prayer.
Father, I thank you that there is no mystery in your word. The difficulty comes not from it being hard to understand. The difficulty comes when culture embraces its sin and rejects you, your sovereignty, and your will. Father, we don't know how any of this will end. We don't know how long it will last. We don't know when you're coming back for us. But we do know what we are to believe, and we do know how we should live, and we do know even the very principles of what we must always be about, which is our Father's business, bringing people to Christ and growing them in Christ. So, Father, would you help us to do that? Would you teach us your word this morning as we go through these mothers? And we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to talk a little bit about Eve as if we really need to know more about her. But one of the things as I was preparing for this, it just becomes so obvious in the Bible. It just becomes so obvious what the Bible's position is on any of these things. And when we talk about the first man and then the first woman, she becomes the first mother. Would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 1 and let's look at verses 26 and 27. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, this is what we read. This was on the sixth day. It says, Then God said, Let us, and he's speaking to the Trinity, because only the Trinity is is God and the image of God. Angels are not being spoken of here. They were not created in the image of God. Let us, the Trinity, make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And as I read this passage... There's all kinds of synapses going off in my brain of all the theological truth here. First of all, we see that it's not evolution that created man, but it was God himself. And even the word Hebrew word bara is mentioned here, which, which emphasizes God's creation rather than evolution. Secondly, we see the Godhead here, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And It says that both of them are created in the image of God. When I see that and understand that, I understand that a woman, in this sense, is equal to a man. Both a man and a woman are created in the image of God. Now, we know that the Bible then will spell out different roles. That's all they are, is roles. The woman doesn't have to go through the man to go to God. She goes directly to Christ And through Christ, as her Lord and Savior, she goes to the Father to pray. So spiritually, and all that she is, she is not a lesser being. But you know what? 
pagan culture. Unbelievers have always made women lesser creatures. Well, how did we get to where we are today? Not because of leaked documents, but because of the first century of Christians who came to Christ and understood these things. And really, if you look at your history, it's Christianity that liberated women. Even though it talks about the roles, the husband being the head of the home, and wife is to, to submit to that. We shouldn't be ashamed of that. And by the way, that's the only thing that works. We see the feminist movement. We see all of these movements that are going. How's that going for them? It seems as if it's all turmoil. Turmoil at home, turmoil at the job, turmoil in public. But those who know the Lord and those who follow his principles, there is joy. Well, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? Both males are created in the image of God. Females are created in the image of God. And by the way, I am making a a distinction here in gender, am I not? There's nothing here that suppose that genders get blended together. In fact, if you look at the Hebrew, when it says male, one word, zakar, female, nekaba, For the female, these genders are clear. There is nothing about a blended gender or changing genders. That comes not from the scriptures. That comes not from the truth. That comes from culture. Culture that is anti-God. Anti-God's word. Anti-specific. I find it so interesting here because the issue, if you hear the news today, it'll say the issue comes down... To who makes the choice for a woman? Is it the government that makes her choices and her body? Or is it the woman? It's neither. It's God. It's God who makes the choices. And it's God to whom all must stand before. Well, getting back to the image of God. The image of God then is number one, I would say, Besides intellect, will, and emotion, animals don't have emotion. The dog who wags his tail is not happy to see you. He knows that that's that's his signal to you that he wants a snack. (laughs) It's about food, beloved. Intellect, will, and emotion. But most importantly, we have the capacity to worship God. The animals do not worship God. And I know that there's verbiage in the Bible about inanimate objects that worship God. But that's just uh, uh, hyperbole. That's just uh, poetic language. Only mankind, man and woman, who were created in the image of God, have the capacity to worship God. And thanks to sin... They also have the capacity to reject that worship, sadly. They they have the capacity to emulate certain attributes of God, like love and righteousness, those moral ones, and no other creatures possess that. Now, as we take a look at the creation of the first woman who becomes the first mother, we find out that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 22, she is taken from Adam's rib. 
I don't really struggle with that at all. And I especially don't struggle with that because one day this is what I read from Gill. He said, it is commonly observed and pertinently enough that the woman was not made from the superior part of man, that she might not be thought to be above him and have power over him, nor from any inferior part as being below him and to be trampled on by him, but out of his side, from one of his ribs, and from a part near his heart and under his arms to show that she should be affectionately loved by him and be always under his care and protection. I think that's great. You know, praise the Lord for these old men and commentaries who were living in a different world than we do now, primarily a biblical world. Primarily looking at it at all of those things. Now, I want to get directly to the scriptures now. I want to look at a couple of things, uh, and especially Eve. uh, I'm going to be looking at a pro-life position from the Bible. Because it's there. And, And Eve is really one of the mothers of the Bible that brings this forth. Now, let's just talk about the word mother for a second. The word mother, the first time it's used, it's used in Genesis 2, verse 24. The second time it's referred to Eve. So what was the first one? You don't have to turn there, but in Genesis 2, verse 24, by the way, it's quoted also in the New Testament by Jesus. It says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And I think what I love about this is it tells us, you know, it wasn't because wasn't because there was nothing else to do, but because God instituted marriage. It's God who wanted man to have a companion. It is God who wanted them to become one flesh and to leave eventually one family unit of the father and mother and become their own family unit as a father and a mother. I am reminded, you've probably heard this joke. Of course, if you're new here, you haven't heard it, and it's worth hearing again. The, the idea is, is that when Adam was created and the animals were created, God said to Adam, take a look and pick a companion. Didn't take very long. About an hour back, Adam comes back with a Labrador retriever. God says, is this your companion? He says, why, yes. God says, Why? He said, well, you know, I mean, dogs are man's best friend. And just think, we're going to be able to go hunting all the time. God says, well, Adam, I just want to advise you. You know, they eat a lot. They will eat you out of house and home. They will cost you an arm and a leg. And Adam says, an arm and a leg, huh? What will you give me for a rib? (laughs) Just kidding. But, uh. We, we, we see then that th- this was instituted by God, but it's the second time that it's mentioned. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, verse 20. The second time that the word mother is used in the Bible, and it refers now to Eve. Genesis chapter 3, verse 20 reads, Now the man called his wife's name Eve. 
because she was the mother of all living. And there's a play on words here between living and Eve's name, which means life. And the idea here is expanded. Not only is she the mother of all living, but motherhood. Eve teaches us that motherhood is about life. It's not even about the word choice in here. And it's certainly not about the word death. And then we find out in Genesis chapter 4 verse 1. Let's turn there quickly. That also was read this morning. In Genesis 4 verse 1. It says, now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived, and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Now, again, there's a lot of synapses there, but I want to concentrate on the fact that she said, I have gotten a man-child. That is gender-specific. You see... Man is not only Adam, but it's also Ish in the Bible. And the woman is Isha, very close to Ish, because she came out from Ish, the man. But her name is Isha. And, and, and you look at almost any language and you find that man, woman. And you can go through many, many languages and you're going to have that connection. But it's still gender specific. And she says, I have gotten a man child. Cain was a male. And then she says, with the help of the Lord. And at this point, at this point, we realize the first mother realized what every mother, what every person should realize is that it's not just a thing of men and women, and it's not just a physical, scientific, biological thing. It is under the Lord's will, the Lord's power, the Lord's miracle. She has gotten a man-child, and there is some discrepancy of whether this is exactly what this passage means, the help of the Lord, but I believe it does, the help of the Lord. It's the Lord's power involved in the mother of the living. And of all mothers with the living. There's a number of other things I want to just mention here quickly. To to really bolster our idea of the biblical viewpoint of biblical life, pro-life. And back in the chapter, chapter 1 of Genesis, when he did create man and woman... Verses 26 and 27, created them in the image of God. Verse 28 gives them a mandate. What is the mandate? To be fruitful and multiply. Not to decrease, but to be fruitful and multiply. It's all about life. It says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Subduing it is the second part and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on earth. God obviously had hunters and fishermen in mind in that verse. But seriously, be fruitful and multiply. It's, it's about living and mothers and motherhood is associated with living, not death. That's our culture, our sad culture that brought that in. We find other places in the scripture that give us this biblical life, pro-life viewpoint. 
I'll take some time this morning to look at them. But turn with me quickly to Exodus chapter 21. If you wanted to know where we get our viewpoint on pro-life, it's from the Bible. And here in Exodus 21, 22, it says, if, a, if men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury, he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand on him, and he shall pay as the judges decide. But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life. Well, no, wait a second. She was only with child. Love that expression. She was only with child. Child hadn't been born. But the law demanded life for life. Meaning that is life within her. When? Well, there, there are many who are talking about at the heartbeat. It's at the moment of conception. It's at the moment of conception, biblically. Now, I don't care whether science catches up or not. Life for life. When does life begin at conception? And it's human life. It's kind of interesting here. Uh, you know, we've heard a quote this past week about, well... I have rights because I exist. Yes, and others don't have rights because you don't allow them to exist. That's unfair. But we could go to Psalm 22, Psalm 51, Psalm 139, Jeremiah 1.5, and we could find all of the same things. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. God had a relationship. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. And there are many, many other scriptures like that. That's why when it says you should not murder, you shall not murder because man is created in the image of God. If you carry out abortion, you are committing murder to a human life who has been created in the image of God. And what do you think God thinks about all of this abortion divide? The scriptures tell us that it never came to God's mind. It was never God's intention anywhere, anytime to sacrifice and kill children. Never. And we recently have studied 1 Kings chapter 11 and 12. Talking about the life of Solomon, Israel's grandest and glorious time when the temple even was built. And yet, the end of Solomon's life, because of the foreign women that were influencing him towards other gods, he erected idols to these false gods in Jerusalem. And because of that, God said, David's kingdom will be split. And that's what we're now into in the book of 1 Kings. But we we find something very interesting. One of the gods that he 
uh, erected a, 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 a high place for, a place of worship for his wives. Doesn't specifically say that he worshiped with them. Doesn't say that. You might see that implied. That's fine. Either, either way, God holds him responsible. And by the way, they did not stop worshiping idols in Jerusalem. And they, these idols existed until the time of Josiah which was getting pretty close to the end. But this one God, the God Molech, he was a fire God. And he was worshipped with human sacrifices. This is one of the idols that Solomon allowed to be erected in Jerusalem. There are numerous allusions in the Old Testament to the worship of this God. The phrase most commonly used is to make their children pass through the fire to Malek. Now some say that doesn't really mean sacrifice unto death. I believe it does. Most commentaries do. And it's in many, many places. It says the tradition is that the statue of Malek was of brass and the hands so arranged that the victim slipped from them into a fire which burnt underneath and of course they killed, the child was killed. There's even the idea that at some point there were drums that were beating to cover up the screaming of the children. In Jeremiah chapter 32, I love this verse. God tells them what his opinion is to sacrificing children. It says they built the high places of Baal that are in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Melech, which I had not commanded them, nor had it entered my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. He says that, I, you know, God knows all things, but here's humanly speaking, he says, Never even entered my mind to think about that. I never wanted to give you that. Never wanted this to happen. And here we are. Here we are in this world where they are upset. Oh my word, there is so much bad that is going to happen if Roe versus Wade gets overturned. I can't figure it out. They talk about violence is going to increase. Death is going to increase. Everything is going to increase. But it just does not follow. Let me say this. There there are ways to prevent unwanted pregnancies. But I'm talking from the Bible. And the Bible instructs the believer to have abstinence before marriage. Wow! It's like the world says, we could never do that. That's out the table. And we have to have it so that these unwanted children could be murdered. And so, as an application, as we're thinking of mothers and motherhood today, not birthing persons day, motherhood is about giving life to children. And you know what? As Christians, we know it's much more than just physical life, but it is physical life, and then it's spiritual life. It's this spiritual nourishment as well as the 
thousands of things that you mothers do. Motherhood is about giving life for her children, not sacrificing her children for her life. Wow. Well, next we come to Mary. And Mary is the mother which I'm going to give today as the trusting mother. There's a lot to say about Mary. But one of the things that comes out was that she knew the scriptures and she trusted God. We know the context. Mary is visited by the angel Gabriel. He has a message for her from God. She believed that. He first comforts her by telling her not to be afraid because she has found favor with God. He tells her that she will bear a son. She will name him Jesus. He will be called the Son of God. He will sit on David's throne and his kingdom will have no end. That's Luke 1, 31 through 33. And I truly believe that at that point, Mary knew exactly who he was talking about, was talking about the Messiah. She was going to be the privileged woman to give birth to the Messiah. And there's a couple of things that we see her, her faith. The first thing we see her faith in was the favor of God. She was told that she had favor with God. Now, that would be great to hear. That's the, if, if, if God came and told us that audibly this morning, that would be great to hear. That's the first reaction. The second reaction is, do you know everything about me, God? <laughs> that would, that's what it is. But in Christ, we've gone through this in the book of Ephesians, you are favored. You have been accepted in the beloved. But she told that she was favored by God. And by the way, Hebrews 11 uh, verse 6 tells us that without faith, it's impossible to believe him. For he, uh, po- po- possible to, to believe him and him would be God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. So I believe already we're talking about her faith. Her faith is confirmed by her words and by Elizabeth's words, her relative. The only time that she really questioned this was when she said, how can this be because I'm a virgin? I have not known a man. It didn't mean she was a maiden, a young maiden. It meant that she had not known a man. She was a virgin. And that's when the angel said, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. And the result of that will be that it will be the Son of God. And from then on, she didn't question. At the very end of it, we have what is called part of Mary's Magnificat, this beautiful uh, acknowledgement. She says, Behold, the the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And then the angel departed. She believed it. And, And tradition tells us that she was pretty young. Some suggest even around 16. When she goes to visit Elizabeth, what happens there is Elizabeth, being under the Holy Spirit, says, Blessed is she, she's talking about Mary, this is verse 45, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what has been spoken to her by the Lord. She knew of the prophecy and she believed that the prophecy was being fulfilled. We also know, too, that she believed 
that she was a sinner and that God was giving the Savior. And we don't know how much she had it theologically, but I, I often think that maybe they had a lot more understanding of theology than we see today in our churches. But she, she prays at the end of this great Magnificat, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Mary was not without sin. Mary realized she needed a Savior, and it's very possible she was connecting it and probably continued to connect the idea that the baby in her womb was going to die on the cross for her sins. Not impossible to go that far. doesn't say in the scripture that we know. But she was told to name him Jesus, which means Jehovah saves. It seems to me that it's us who can't accept it that quickly. But she very well may have. That the one in her womb, the life in her womb, was going to provide salvation not only for Israel, but for herself. The application I would have from Mary would be, we, we all, and mothers, need to be trusting in God. Trusting in God for salvation. Trusting in his word. Trusting in God because, you know, I'm a little older now and I've seen life go by. And I understand there's all kinds of difficulties in motherhood. There's all kinds of difficulties in raising your children. There's all kinds of difficulties in life. But to keep your trust in the Lord who promises to work all things out together for good. But it's more than that. To to trust and know the word. You have to know the word in order to trust it. She knew of these prophecies. Probably almost every Israelite did. I wish I could say that we need to know the Bible. Just like every Christian does. But that wouldn't be necessarily a flattering comment. So we need to be in the word. We need to be teaching the word. We need to be believing the word. And truly, to believe the word means to live the word. And when it comes to the area of pro-life versus pro-choice, there's only one choice, and that is the choice to believe and to know the Bible, and what God says about it. Now, there is one interesting thing here uh, about the idea of the pro-life message. Even in Mary, obviously, there's a pro-life message. When she goes to visit Elizabeth, we know what happens. That Elizabeth's baby, John the Baptist, while still in the womb, leaps for joy. And, of course, only a life can do that. But the interesting thing is, when it says, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby, the baby leaped in her womb. And the word for baby is brethos. Brethos. Okay. Now, in Luke chapter 2, after Mary has the baby Jesus, and he's laying in the manger, guess what he is called? A brephos. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the brephos, the baby, as he lay in the manger. In other words, the child is a child 
inside or outside the womb. He's a brephos. A child is a human life. We find that from Mary. I'm not saying we're against scientific arguments. I'm not saying we're against logic. But you know, at the end of the day, I just... I just want to be like Mary and trust God. I want to trust his word and this is what it says. This is what makes right right and wrong wrong. Now there's another mother that I want to move on to and that is Eunice. Eunice is Timothy's mother and I'm going to call her the evangelistic mother. So if you would turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. And we want to look at verse 5. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. So obviously Paul has this close relationship with Timothy. He's writing in his second letter and final letter. And if you remember, this is, this is the letter that he ends up saying, Preach the word. It was the, the last message he's going to give to Timothy. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. So he's writing Timothy and he says to Timothy, I am mindful of the sincere faith which is in you. And then he says, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I am sure that it is in you as well. Well, let's just start with the phrase sincere faith. What an interesting word. Uh, First of all, the faith would mean faith in a person. It's not just, oh, I just think things are going to go well. Okay, sirrah, sirrah. That's an expression that means uh, everything's fine. Whatever will be, will be. No, faith is our faith in Christ as our Savior. The one who came and died on the cross took our sins, took everyone's sins upon him and died in our place. That's what faith is about because that's what brings salvation, nothing else. So that's the idea of faith. But what about a sincere faith? Well, the word for sincere literally means not hypocritical. And it can mean, first of all, sincere or not sincere, genuine or not genuine. In other words, don't be fake. You know, there are people who do profess to know Christ, but actually don't know Christ. There are people who profess to know Christ, but they live in a hypocritical way. And it is very interesting because you hear this in politics. You hear about their religion and then you hear their comments and statements, some of which I quoted this morning. But he says, you have a sincere faith and I am sure about it. And one of the reasons he's sure about it is because it was in his grandmother and in his mother. Now, I'm just going to just tease us here a little bit. Many times we read about Timothy in the Bible from Paul, and he uses the expression like, you are uh, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And it sounds like possibly Paul may have led him to Christ. Now, this is the second time he's in Derby and Lystra uh, when they found Timothy, and he Timothy followed them. The first time he was in Lystra, And Derby, his grandmother, Timothy's grandmother and mother, came to Christ. But we see the expression, Timothy, you're my true child in the faith. Some believe that because of that, that means that Paul led him to Christ. And he may have. 
But others say, well, it could also mean that he's a spiritual father to him, that he was already saved. Paul took him under his wing, grew him in Christ, grew him in ministry. And there is a little bit of possibility of evidence of that, because as I said, when Paul first went to uh, Derby and Lystra, it was in Acts 14, and the gospel was given. And by tradition, we believe that that's when either Lois or Lois and Eunice came to Christ. And then some four years later, he comes back and there's Timothy now. And Timothy, it says, is a disciple. Before Paul got there, he was a disciple, meaning that he probably was a believer. Acts chapter 16, verse 1 says, Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra, second time. And a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And a little bit of an implication there that he probably wasn't a believer. But it says a disciple was there. You can only be a disciple after you first come to Christ. A disciple is a learner. And you become a learner the moment that you trust Christ as Lord and Savior. So what does this mean? Well, number one, it probably means then that it was his mother and or grandmother that led him to Christ. If indeed this tradition is playing out well. But the other point is is that we really don't know exactly the age of Timothy, but he's probably 18 or 20 when Paul comes on his second trip. So four years earlier could put him anywhere from 14, 15, 16. Meaning he became a Christian at 14, 15, 16. Now the point that I definitely want to drive home is that we all ought to be evangelizing our children. Number one mission field right there. And some mission fields are greater than others. But number one mission field. And this is mothers. And it begins in day one with setting the stage that they're in a Christian home and and teaching them these things. Even into the teenage years, the tough teenage years. And here, it seems as if, if this all works out, and and if it doesn't, that's fine, but we know that Timothy was young and Timothy was, was led to Christ before Paul's second missionary journey. It means that perhaps they led him to Christ while he was a teenager. And we all think, all of us who've had children went through those teenager years were thinking, oh my word. The point we see from Eunice then is that mothers ought to always be about the number one thing and that is sharing the gospel. You know, when Paul went to Corinth, he said, look, Paul, why are you going to Corinth? Now, he had some duties there. There was a collection to give to the churches in Jerusalem. There were other things. But he said, when I came to Corinth, I only wanted to know one thing and one thing only, and that was Christ and him crucified. That's what mattered first and foremost to Paul, the gospel, the true gospel, the biblical gospel. And that's what we are to do. And mothers, that's what ought to be on your heart, number one. You want to change the world? You lead your child to Christ. You want to change the world and politicians? You pray for them. You pray that they come to Christ. Can God save them? 
You know what the biblical answer is? Well, he saved you, didn't he? (laughs) He saved us, didn't he? He could save anyone. He died for our sins, all of our sins. And I just want to say this too. You know, I do understand life and culture and, and, and people who don't know Christ and make bad decisions and then come to Christ. There is forgiveness in Christ even for this and all sin. I just want to get across the biblical point of view on pro-life as well as these other characteristics. There is forgiveness in Christ. Even as believers, the decisions we make, if they're wrong, we can confess them to God and he forgives us. Not saying it's okay to do them because we can confess them, but saying that if we do sin, he forgives us. What a great God we have. It is interesting in the culture of Jesus' day. What was the culture in Jesus' day? Yeah, abortion was fine. Uh, Killing children was fine. Killing children up to two years of age. We know that in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, the brutal, horrendous tyrant named King Herod the Great removed all the children from that area from birth to two years And it was okay. It was customary. Same thing with the Roman and the Greek culture. But again, I have a quote here. It was Christianity that changed a lot of culture. Liberated women and liberated unborn children. A little quote here says, The first Christian community, by its teaching and practice, radically opposed the customs rampant in the Greco-Roman world. And it's even written in the Didache, which is not scripture, but it's kind of like a first century writing of how the, the disciples of the disciples applied these things. And this is what's written. You shall not procure an abortion, nor destroy a newborn child. That's A.D. 70. Completely against culture. And then finally, we have Hannah. And I've entitled Hannah as the dedicating mother. I could have entitled Hannah as the praying mother. As we take a look at the scriptures here, turn, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. Now, this is just one of the times that she prayed. We find Hannah praying in chapter 1, verse 10, verse 12, verse 15, verse 26. We, we find her praying in chapter 2. But here's just one of the times that she was praying. And of course, by the way, before we really read this, I want to say you could go to Samuel's life and see that Samuel was a man of prayer and the times that he prayed. And before we even get into this, then, let me say this. What does that tell us? Mothers, be praying mothers. Mothers, teach your children to be praying children. Teach them to emulate their lives. Really, as a mother and as a father, you have this on your shoulders. They can emulate you. They should emulate you. Be careful how you live. It says in 1 Samuel chapter 1, For this boy I prayed. So we know that the, 
We know that she couldn't have children. The Lord had closed her womb. And then finally, because of her prayers, the Lord finally gave her Samuel. For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition, which I asked of him. So I also have dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. And what's very interesting is, is uh, serve forever. The word is serve forever. You know, you wake up one morning and you're in Bible college and you say, what happened? Well, your parents dropped you off last night. You're here. You're here forever. You're in the ministry. Well, the truth of the matter is, is I, I do want to say this. As we talk about dedication, I, I want to say this is that teach your children to serve the Lord. This ought to be a part and parcel of it. They are not come up compartmentalized that, well, I'm raising children and then I will serve the Lord. No, there's never an admonition to stop serving the Lord. I do know that it's limited. I can be very limited. But to serve the Lord as a family, to serve the Lord and have your children come, teach them this as a way of life. And there is a play on words here uh, in these verses because the word Dedicate has the same root meaning as ask. So my petition is a petition of dedication. The Lord answered my petition. And so I've dedicated him to the Lord. And of course, Samuel was the great prophet. And the idea was because you have given me a son through petition and dedication of prayer, I will give my son to you Petition and dedication. And I just want to make this message, and I've said this before. Mothers, I know you will be behind your children. I know as they grow up as believers, you will encourage them to live for the Lord, and that is number one. Whatever they do, whatever job they have, whatever activity they have, to emulate a Christian behavior and a Christian testimony. That's what you're teaching them. That's what we're all teaching them. But mothers, it's not wrong to talk. And fathers, it's not wrong to talk to your children about full-time Christian service. It seems to me that the ministry is not being replenished. Now, it doesn't mean that they're less Christians if God leads them in another direction and not into ministry. But how do we know? How do you know when your children are little? Number one, there ought to be that dedication. You're dedicating your children. And that's hard. It's hard on most days to cut the apron string. There are a few other days where it's not so hard to cut the apron string. But to cut the apron string, Lord, if, if you want my child to be a missionary and go distant lands where it is even dangerous to name the name of Christ, oh God, I give them to you, but would you keep them safe? I give them to you for whatever you have for them. I, I, I really see this, the idea of prayer and the idea of dedication and the idea, why not talk to your kids? I mean, they may have interests and that's great. It may lead them into a wonderful career. They may have a wonderful Christian testimony, get involved in the local church. Absolutely. I'm loving that. But also talk to them about the possibility of going into full-time Christian service, of serving the Lord or you know, marrying someone who's going into full-time 
Christian service. That's what we learn from Hannah. But I want to say this, as far as a pro-life message, it's very interesting that the reason for the many prayers of Hannah was that the Lord had closed her womb. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. So as Elkanah had this relationship with Hannah, but also had another wife, he loved Hannah. And it says in verse 5, But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. But then we find out, same chapter, verses 19 through 21. And it says, Then they arose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord and returned again to their house. This was after her prayers. This is when Eli, the man of God, thought she was drunk. Why would drunk people be praying in the temple? Unless you had lost control of the morality of your day and age, including your son's. She was praying. She wasn't drunk. And after they worshipped, it says, Then they arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. means he answered her prayer in his timing. And it came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son and she named him Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. And of course, and then it goes on about that she was going to dedicate him to the Lord. But is that true? I mean, we're, we talk about science and we talk about all of these things. Does the Lord close and opens wombs? Absolutely. Absolutely. He is in control. This whole thing about birth isn't up to anybody's choice, but the Lord's. He is sovereign. He is sovereign over all of these things. He's the giver of life. And so when we think about mothers, it's got to be about life. It's part and parcel when he opens the womb. And so from Hannah, we learn to be people of prayer. Mother's Day, mothers be people, be women of prayer and dedicate your life and your child's life to the Lord. Let me just close with a few quotes, just just some really interesting quotes that I came across. One writes, I cannot tell you how much I owe to the solemn words of my good mother. It was the custom on Sunday evenings while we were yet little children, for her to stay at home with us. And then we sat around the table and read verse after verse, and she explained the scriptures to us. After that was done, there came a time of pleading. After devotions, a time of pleading. And the question was asked how long it would be before we think about our state, our lives How long before we would seek the Lord? 
Then came a mother's prayer. Some of the words of our mother's prayer we shall never forget, even when our hair is gray. Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Another one I'd like to read is entitled Remarkable Mothers. There was Monica. You probably know about Monica. Monica was the mother of Augustine, who when her son wandered far astray from her early teaching, never lost faith that God would bring him back. There's that trust in God. There's that prayer life. And by her love and prayers dragged him from the mire and set him among the princes, Augustine. There's D.L. Moody. And he said all that he ever accomplished in life was due to his mother. There's Daniel Webster. Ascribed his masterful usage of English to his mother's teaching. There's Thomas Carlyle with a very strong, passionate personality all through his life. But he had love for his mother. And disagreeable he often was to others, but to her always tender and considerate. Eugene Field was a child of six years when his mother died, but he said, I have carried the memory of her gentle voice and soothing touch all through my life. The missionary Robert Moffat testified that it was his mother's influence that led him to be a missionary. There you go, Hannah's dedication. And John Randolph said, I would have been an atheist, but for the recollection of kneeling at my mother's side while she taught me to say, Our Father. Thinking of Eunice and sharing the gospel. So in closing, I I just want to say we have instruction. It shouldn't be something that's hard to understand. We we understand from the Bible that the Bible is biblical life. Pro-life is based on biblical life. It's all about life. We learned that from Eve, the first mother, the mother of the living, to be fruitful and multiply. It's anything but death never even entered God's mind to do those things. We have Mary who trusted God in his word, trusted God obviously throughout her life and for her son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then just thinking of that, it was on the cross, the Lord looked at Mary, his mother, and was concerned about that John would take care of her. While he's on the cross, we have Eunice's testimony Teach your children lots of good things. Teach your children lots of godly things. Teach your children first and foremost of the gospel. Bring them to Christ. That they as sinners come and place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What he did on the cross for them. And then finally Hannah. The example of Hannah. To pray. Be a praying mother. A praying example. But a dedicating mother. You know, always be behind your children, especially when they want to serve the Lord. Don't discourage them from serving the Lord. Believe me, as a pastor, that's, you don't want to do that. It's too easy. It's too easy for them to get discouraged. 
and be talking to them like some of these about full-time ministry to serve the Lord. And that might mean that your life might have to become a little more holy, a little more godly if that's what they're going to do. But always pray for them and encourage them. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you, we thank you for your word. It not only teaches the characteristics that we ought to have as Christians, it teaches characteristics that mothers ought to have. But it also, it also argues the truth in a culture that we live in that is going ballistic at the thought of overturning Roe versus Wade, at the thought of saving the lives of many unborn children. Oh God, we understand, not because we're more intelligent, not because we're more scientific, but because you have saved us and we know your word. And like Mary, we trust in your word, believe it. And like Eunice, we're not hypocritical. We're not hypocritical how we live. And hopefully, like Hannah's prayer, even all of us, mothers included, dedicating our lives to you anew and afresh, even now. And if there's one here, Lord, who doesn't know Christ, who has never trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior, may they come to Jesus, say, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, but I believe that you died on the cross for all of my sins. I trust you as my Savior. Save me, Lord. And at that moment, the forgiveness of Christ, no matter what sin, will be forgiven. Father, we just thank you for these things. Thank you for our mothers. Thank you for our dear women here in this church. Well, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.